these are Lego base plates. Um, I had three boys, they're all grown, and I still have fond, fond memories of stepping on Lego pieces in the middle of the night. Um, <clears throat> uh, why do I have them in, up in front of me this morning, uh, presenting them to you? It's because, you know, as we look at the book of Acts, we, hear, we see a string of stories, they're true stories of what happened in the first church, but it's very difficult for us to figure out now, how is it that we attach ourselves to these narratives? And what I want to do this morning is to kind of give you the Lego base plates of Acts, okay? The ways in which we can attach to the truths that Luke is by telling story, by telling these stories of the first church, he's trying to make some important points. Specifically, he's making some important points about what the focus of the church should be. The focus of the church should be that we are seeking to be worshipers maturing in Christ. He's, going, he's sharing with us the pathways that the first church had for how to grow in Christ. He talks about large group gatherings. He talks about medium-sized group gatherings. And he talks about small groups. And then he talks about some vital signs, some ways that you can measure how a church is doing at fulfilling that focus of seeking to be worshipers maturing in Christ. Those vital signs, as we will find in Acts, are rooted in Scripture, growing in Christ, and making disciples. And so what we're going to do is take a tour of the book of Acts. We're going to tour this a whole bunch of times, okay, as the summary message of this series of messages. This is the 25th message in the book of Acts, and this morning we're looking at the first church and our church, how will our stories compare. Now, a few years ago, I quoted uh, a Canadian uh, professor by the name of Jordan Peterson. Uh, I don't, he's not a Christian, but in the intervening years since I last quoted him, he's getting closer, you know, so that's kind of interesting. Um, but he said this, and I think his question is one that lots of people ask. And it certainly ought to be one that everybody in the church should ask. Here's what he said. If you want to be a Christian, let's say if you think that's necessary, it's not exactly obvious what you should do. You should go to church, but that's not enough, I don't think. Now, there's something true in Peterson's comment, and there's something that's not true. Let's start with what's not true. He thinks that Christianity is spelled D-O, that it's something that you essentially do. You know, like you can start with attending church, but there's other stuff that you should do. And we all know, don't we, that being a Christian is not at all about D-O, what we do. It's about what Jesus has D-O-N-E. It's what Jesus has done for us. We are saved, we are made right with God, we have a future 
with all eternity in heaven, not because of anything we do, but because God the Father sent God the Son to this earth to live a perfect life and then to die as a payment for the sin of the world. And when he hung there and died, one of the words he said, one of his last words, it is finished. It's paid for. The debt of sin is paid for. He didn't stay in the grave. Three days later, he rose from the dead to demonstrate that he was triumphant over sin and also to prepare a place for us where we will be with him forever. And whoever puts their faith in Jesus will not perish but have everlasting life. That is the part that Peterson gets wrong. Now, let's say you have become a Christian. You are a believer in Jesus. Now, what are the next steps? And that's where Peterson's comment becomes really important. Well, what are those next steps? And I'm glad you asked. Let's take a tour of the book of Acts to see what the base plates are that we build the structure of our Christian life upon. And I'll tell you why this is important. If you don't have a base plate for Legos, they're going to fall off, especially if you've got your Legos on carpet. They're going to fall and they're going to get kicked, and then your dad is going to step on them in the middle of the night, and it isn't very fun. But if you have a base plate and everything is connected and there's something organic to it, then what happens is you are no longer just picking and choosing, but you're actually on a strategy that God has designed for your maturity. Too often, people think of church as a smorgasbord. That is, they just pick off a menu. I'll have some of this, I'll have a little bit of this, and I'll have a little bit of that, and I don't really like that. That's not very fun for me, so I'm not going to do that. And guess what? To the extent that we individually pick and choose is the extent to which we will be hindered both in the impact of our church and in everyone's individual maturity. So we really need to think about how did the first church function and what are the ways in which our story needs to compare with theirs. So with that in mind, let's think first about our focus, seeking to be worshipers maturing in Christ. I want to take you on a little tour of Acts here to help you see that the first church saw worship as the paramount be, uh, uh, reason for being. Everything in life was worship. Sometimes in the 21st century here, when we use the word worship, what we mean is the singing that happens in a worship service. That's worship. And everything else is something else. And that's a very shallow definition of the word worship. Worship is to declare God's worth in all of life. Yes, we gather together for worship, And that includes singing, but it also includes our prayers. It includes the dedication of children. It includes uh, the reading of Scripture. It includes the study of God's Word. It even includes the fellowship that we have with one another. All of life is worship. So then, as we gather together for worship, we're equipped to be able to worship the Lord through everything that happens in our workaday lives. Let's see how the first church did that. Acts 1.14. And by the way, you got two options here. You either follow with me feverishly, which would be a good thing to do. I would recommend it. I won't be going super fast except at the end when I'm out of time. <laughs> uh, uh, or you can sit back and just hear it and absorb it. 
whatever your learning style is, is cool with me, okay? But I just want you to know that we're going to be going on a tour through Acts about five or six times, okay? We're starting back at the beginning and running through it. We start back at the beginning and we run through it, okay? So that's what's ahead. Let's look at this, seeking to be worshipers, maturing in Christ. Acts 1.14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. What did the disciples do after Jesus ascended into heaven? They gathered together and they worshiped. They spent time in worship. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. What were they doing? Worshiping, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Acts 2, 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, that includes the Lord's table, and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. Do you see how there was this sense of worship that they were doing together? Verse 46, Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. Worship, seeking to be worshipers, maturing in Christ. Acts chapter 3, verse 1, Peter and John are going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. What are they doing? They're seeking to be worshipers, maturing in Christ. It's just part of the normal behavior of life. Acts chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, Peter gives the call for people to repent and believe in Jesus so that people can become worshipers. Repent, therefore, turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Why? That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You experience the Lord's presence in your life. There's a worshiping aspect to all of life then as you would repent and believe in Jesus. Acts chapter 4 verse 24. When they, were, they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, worshiping God for his creation, what he has done in the world that he has made. Acts 4.31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness, seeking to be worshipers maturing in Christ. In Acts chapter 5, we're introduced to a, a negative aspect in the church's life. There are uh, a couple who, by their lack of worship, it leads to death. And that, that actual, their dying actually leads the church into greater worship. You remember the story, Ananias and Sapphira are pretending to worship the Lord through their giving, but they are lying and so, Peter confronts Ananias in Acts 5.4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. Ananias' sin wasn't that he held back his property. He could do that. The sin was uh, saying, saying to, to people and to God that he was giving all of the proceeds of the property to the Lord. When Ananias, when Ananias, verse 5, heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. <laughs> That'd be kind of an interesting church discipline process, wouldn't it? Um, and then look what happens. As Ananias dies, it says, great fear came upon all who heard it. 
Wherever you see the word fear in the Bible, chances are good that it has something to do with worship. Sometimes it does have fear in the sense of being afraid, being very afraid. God is not tame. We don't have him under our control. But most of the time, the idea of fear has the idea of a recognition of who God is in all his splendor and glory and then acting upon it. And so, quite commonly, the response of people to a genuine encounter with God is going to be one of awe, one of fear, one of a recognition, I'm in the presence of one who is greater than I am. Acts chapter 5, verses 29 to 32, you have Peter and the apostles giving testimony to the um, high priest and the Jewish leadership. And then in chapter 5, verse 40, they, the Jewish leaders beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. Look at verse 41 of Acts 5. Then they left the presence of the council, listen, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. You see how they're seeking to be worshipers and even the beating that they took led them to worship, rejoicing that they had the privilege of suffering dishonor for the name. And then there's this summary statement, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Acts chapter 6 shows the power of one worshiper. Acts chapter 6, verse 10, there's Stephen. They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Acts 6, 15, gazing at Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. One guy who had just sought to be a worshiper and the impact he had on his world. Acts chapter 7, where, Peter, where Stephen gives his speech, describes both the right worship of God in the history of Israel, as well as the wrong worship of God in the history of Israel. And we come to the concluding words in Acts chapter 7, as Stephen is being stoned, Acts seven fifty six, he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I don't know about you, but I don't know that I would have that heart to worship as boulders are being tossed at my head to say, look, I'm worshiping the Lord, <laughs> seeking to be a worshiper, maturing in Christ. Acts chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, worship expands to the Samaritans. The apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, and they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Acts 8, 18 to 20, were introduced to a guy who thought that you could gain standing as a worshiper of God by giving money. He thought it could be purchased. He wanted to buy the Holy Spirit by giving some money. What a disaster that is. And then in the end of Acts 8, verses 35 to 39, we have this Ethiopian eunuch the worship of one man who's on his way home, on his way home to Africa, who's not understanding the scriptures and 
The guy joins him in his chariot. They discuss the scripture and he puts his faith in Jesus and he goes on his way worshiping the Lord. Acts chapter 12, we see that worship involves desperate intercession. Look at verse 4. James is killed. Peter's in prison. When they had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers, etc. Peter was kept in prison in verse 5, but earnest prayer for Peter was made to God by the church. You see, worship involves desperate intercession. And we've done that from time to time here at East White Oak, haven't we? Where we've seen a situation of one in our church family or some other circumstance where we are desperate for God. We long for Him to work, and we pray earnestly that He may act and save. And hasn't it been wonderful to see the way that the Lord has answered our prayers? In the end of Acts 12, we have contrasted with the churches seeking to be worshipers maturing in Christ. You have the example of Herod Agrippa I that we looked at last week, how he's giving an oration and he's got his royal robes on and he's taking his seat upon the throne and Acts 12 Uh, Verse 22, the people are shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down. Why? Because he did not give God the glory. So whether it's the positive examples or the negative ones that we see in Acts, what we see is that the first church had a focus. It was seeking to be worshipers, maturing in Christ. Now, there are pathways that are demonstrated throughout the book of Acts which reveal the ways in which the church gathered together in order to help one another become worshipers maturing in Christ. And basically, there's three different sized groups that you'll find in Acts. There's large groups of thousands There's medium-sized groups that we term Bible fellowships here at East White Oak uh, that are groups of somewhere between 40 to 120 people or so. And then there are small groups, groups of 8 to 16, 8 to 20, somewhere in there. Let's look at how we see these in the book of Acts, and let's go back to the beginning again. We'll be at Acts chapter 2 this time, verse 6. At this sound, the multitude came together. They're bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They're up on the Temple Mount. Thousands of people are gathering together. If you look down at verse 36, you see that uh, there's this call, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, a call to believe in Jesus. And then as a result, If you look at this large group in verse 41, it says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people gathered together at once upon the Temple Mount. And in fact, according to verse 47 of Acts 2, this happened day after day. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. If you look at Acts chapter 4, verse 4, 
you see a similar thing happen. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So again, this is large group meeting and many more people coming to faith in Christ. Acts chapter 4, verse 31 It says, they prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This sense of large group togetherness, seeking to be worshipers, maturing in Christ. In Acts chapter 5, They're all together on Solomon's portico, multitudes of both men and women. Acts 5.42, we see uh, that every day in the temple, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus, this idea of large group gathering. In Acts chapter 6, look at verse 2, and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. (laughs) So, there's somehow a gathering of large group in order to handle a problem that had happened in the church. So, you see large group worship and gathering in the first church. It seems to me that that is a wonderful pathway for us to seek to be worshipers maturing in Christ. And then there's this middle-sized group, this group of Bible fellowship groups. Uh, Let me seek to demonstrate that here in the book of Acts. Acts 1.15 In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. So we have this medium-sized group gathering together in order to help those folks become better worshipers maturing in Christ. Acts 2.46, day by day attending the temple together, that's large group, and breaking bread in their homes. So they're meeting in homes. And Many of the homes, I demonstrated at the time, held up to 120 people in them. And so a lot of these meetings weren't just small groups, they were meeting in Bible fellowship groups. Uh, In Acts chapter 4, verses 23 and 31, you see this as well. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. Well, How do Peter and John do that? They aren't meeting in the large group. They're meeting in one of these medium-sized groups. Acts 4.31, when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And and then Acts 5.12, or excuse me, Acts 5.42, you see it once again. Uh, Every day in the temple and from house to house. That's a phrase that Luke uses to describe these Bible fellowships that they did not cease teaching and preaching the Christ as Jesus. So there was these meetings in a large setting, but then they would get into smaller, but not too small groups that were gathered for the purpose of developing our sense of worship maturing in Christ. Acts chapter 8, verse 3, Paul, who is uh, the guy who is later called the Apostle Paul, he's named Saul here, he's a persecutor of the church. 
And as he's persecuting the church, he's going, it says, look what it says, verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. He's not going in one at a time in homes. He's going where people are gathering in these medium-sized groups and gathering them by the hundreds and carrying them off to prison. That's why the whole church got scattered out of Jerusalem. Acts chapter 12, verse 12, you'll see it again. There's a prayer meeting. Peter's in prison. We looked at it last Sunday. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Not a small group, but not the whole group of thousands. They're gathered in a home, about maybe as many as 100, 120 of them, certainly not more than that, gathering in these medium-sized groups, seeking to be worshipers, maturing in Christ. And then there is small groups, the gatherings of small groups. So in Acts chapter 1, you have the apostles meeting together. That's a small group. In Acts chapter 2, verse 46, it says they're meeting in homes. And while there were some homes that had enough room for 100 to 120 people, there were many homes that did not. And so people were meeting in small groups there. In Acts chapter 6, verse 2, you have the, the 12 summoning the number of disciples. That 12 is a small group. And then they appoint seven guys to take care of the Greek, the Hellenistic Jewish widows in Jerusalem. And those seven guys form a small group for the specific mission of caring for widows. Do you see how, as we're looking through Acts, there are these three pathways of a large group and a medium-sized group and a small group to help people to grow to be worshipers maturing in Christ. This is forming kind of the Lego base plate of what we're going to, how we're going to organize and function as a church. Now then, let's look at what we call here, what we call vital signs. Um, these vital signs are ways that we measure how we're doing as worshipers. Ways that we measure how we're doing as worshipers. Let's see if Luke records these in Acts. The first one is being rooted in Scripture. That is that the first church always ask the question as they're thinking, how do we be worshipers maturing in Christ? They always ask this question first. What does the Bible say? <laughs> that was the first question they asked. What does the Bible say? And it's the same kind of question that we have to ask ourselves. Look at Acts chapter 1 verse 20. They look to the scripture for guidance on what do we do about replacing Judas? And they quote the Psalms. In Acts chapter 2, verses 16 to 21, they look to the Scripture, the prophet Joel, for an explanation of what happened at Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verses 25 to 34, they look to the Scripture, David, to make the appeal for people to come to Christ by faith, believing in Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, verse 40, uh, 41, or no, excuse me, 42, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What were the apostles' teaching except the, the Scriptures? 
In Acts chapter 3, you see this wonderful flow of Jesus as the fulfillment of Scripture. Acts 3.18, all the prophets speak of Jesus. Acts chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, Moses speaks of Jesus. Acts chapter 3, verse 24, Samuel and those who come after him speak of Jesus. And Acts chapter 3, verse 25, Abraham speaks of Jesus. You see how the early church looked to the Old Testament scriptures to be rooted as a measuring stick for how we're doing as worshipers. In Acts chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, it forms part of an explanation of the opposition to Jesus as they are thinking about why is it that we're being persecuted? They looked to the Bible and they saw that Psalm 2 actually speaks to the question. In Acts chapter 6, when they face this really hard problem of an uneven distribution of food among widows, it was a hard problem. They said, let's get some really good people on this task. And the apostles said, but we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and the teaching of the Word, the ministry of the Word of God. They saw that they couldn't, for the sake of a really important and really hard problem, get distracted from their attention of being rooted in Scripture. In fact, Stephen's entire speech is just filled with the Bible, uh, one of the longest ancient speeches recorded in history, and yet it's filled with Scripture. In Acts chapter 8, verses 30 to 35, we have a looking to the Scripture to explain the good news. This eunuch from Ethiopia is on his way home, and he's reading the Bible, and Philip goes up to him and says, do you understand what you're reading? How can I unless somebody explain it to me? Philip gets up in the chariot, and he happens to be reading it at Isaiah 53, and the Bible says that beginning from that Scripture, Philip explained to him the good news about Jesus. Rooted in Scripture. I love the summary statement in Acts chapter 12, verse 24. Just a short sentence. Listen to it. But the Word of God increased and multiplied. Rooted in Scripture. A second vital sign that's very clear from the first church is that they were people who were really found a priority in growing in Christ. Growing in Christ. In Acts chapter 1, verses uh, 6 to 8, they were not fascinated by prophetic events just for the sake of fulfilling their curiosity. You know, there's a lot of people these days that are interested in prophecy just because they want to satisfy their intellectual curiosity. That's not good enough. We've got to be interested in prophetic events for what it does in helping us to be worshipers, maturing in Christ. And so, you see in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they're talking to Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? It's a, it's a, it, it's a prophetic question. It's a question of future events. Jesus answers them, it's not for you to know the times of the seasons the Father is fixed by his own authority. But instead, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, or in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
that the issue is you grow in Christ by being witnesses to Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verses 21 to 22, when they're thinking about replacing Judas as one of the apostles, they said, here's the qualification, they have to have had a relational discipleship with Jesus. That's what it means, that they had to have been with Jesus, been with us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. That's growing in Christ. Acts 2.42, we've looked at it a couple times already, but we're looking at it from yet another dimension. Now they're doing devotion to the right things. You see, growing in Christ, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. There's a oneness of fellowship in word and in deed. They have everything in common. This is a remarkable thing about the first church. There was a oneness of fellowship. Acts 4.32 Look at it. It says, the full number who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Great power the apostles were giving their testimony. Do you see how they're growing in Christ? Their stuff, that doesn't matter. I've got Jesus. And the, and the apostles, they have great power, but look what happens. Their testimony is to the resurrection of Jesus, and it says, and great grace was upon them all, not just the apostles. There was a a grace that came from growing in Christ, in a oneness of fellowship, and that led to great giving. They're selling their property and giving it away. They're able in Acts chapter 6 to solve great problems without diminishing their mission. Why? Because they are growing in Christ. They're able to handle persecution. They're all scattered at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, and yet they stay on mission everywhere they go when they're scattered, they're telling people about Jesus. That's a demonstration of their growing in Christ. They're ready, Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Philip is in the middle of a revival. People are coming to Christ right and left, and God tells him, leave the revival and go down a deserted road. I'll show you where to go. And Philip does it. He is ready to go where God wants him to go, to say what God wants him to say, and to be what God wants him to be. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? I've shared this about Luis Palau, how great evangelist gone all over the world. At the end of his life, he gave a video, and he said, I'm afraid I'll, I'll tear up as I say this, but he said, my whole life can be summarized in this, in this old gospel hymn, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. I'll say what you want me to say, and I'll be what you want me to be. That's the first church, growing in Christ. As we look at this, we have to ask this question, is that the same things that should mark the church today? And my answer is yes, yes, yes. The first church was growing in Christ in prayer, in financial giving, in caring for one another, in church government, in obeying the Holy Spirit, in solving difficult problems. They were, through all of those, able to grow in Christ and so can we. Now let's look at uh, this last growing, uh, last vital sign, making disciples. We have at Acts chapter 2, verse 41, Pentecost, 
where there are 3,000 added to their number. Acts 2.47, there's daily evangelism. Acts 4.4, 5,000 men. Acts 5.14, another summary statement on the part of Luke where he says, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, despite the problem that they had had, because they solved it in a godly way, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts chapter 8, 35 to 38, there's just one person who gets saved. God's not just interested in the masses, the 5,000 people at once, he's also interested in the one Ethiopian to come to know Jesus so that the gospel could get to Africa. Acts chapter 12, verse 24, in contrast to Herod Agrippa's weirdness, the word of God increases and multiplies. And that's just through the 25 messages that we looked at in the first church. This is a theme that goes way beyond in Acts, way beyond the first church in Jerusalem. And I I'll, I'll take you on a tour. I'm going to read fast, but I just want to take you on a little tour through the rest of Acts so that you see this making disciples is a vital sign that they never let go of. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. 942. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. 1044. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Acts 11, 18. And when they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance, leading to eternal life. 11.21, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Acts 11.24, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Acts 11.26, for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Acts 13, verse 12, the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Acts 13.44, the next Sabbath almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to the eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Acts 14, 21. When they'd preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and to Antioch. Um, Acts 16, Verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Acts 16, 34, then he brought them into his house and set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Acts 17, verse 12, many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Acts 17, 34, some men joined him and believed among whom all also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. Acts 19, verse 17 through verse 20. Uh, it says, at this, 
and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Is it any wonder then that as we get to the end of Acts, we see as this last verse of Acts, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Brothers and sisters, the vital sign of the church is that we make disciples. We must see new converts and see them grow if we are to be faithful to our mission. So, as we conclude this series in Acts, we see a focus, seeking to be worshipers, maturing in Christ. All of life is worship. We do it by gathering together in three different sized groups, large group, middle sized group, small group. And we measure how we're doing as worshipers by these three vital signs rooted in Scripture, growing in Christ, making disciples. I invite you to get on the Lego base, right? So that you may grow as well and that our church may be a church very much like the first church. You know, I've heard over the years, lots of times where people have said, oh, if we could just go back and be like the first church. And as I've studied this over these 25 messages, I have to say to you, there is nothing that hinders us. The Lord has laid out for us the ways by which we too can experience this kind of joy in worship and service and love of the Lord. What a privilege it's been to walk with the first church over these last months, hasn't it? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, please bless you and attend your word here. Where there's anyone here who's never put their faith and hope in Jesus, help them to see that the things that we've talked about mostly today are for people who are already Christians. That if anyone who's never put their faith in Jesus, I pray that they would begin with that recognition that it's not about do, it's about what you've done for us. And that they would say, Lord, forgive me of my sins by what you did at the cross. I trust you now. I believe that you died for me. I believe you rose again. And I want my life to be lived by faith in you. And for those of us who are believers, especially those of us who are part of East White Oak, we, we would pray, Lord, do what you did in the first church among us. Help us to be white-hot worshipers, maturing in Christ. 
that we may see in these principles that we've talked about today, not some legalistic standard like we're going to try to uh, somehow force on folks, but rather that we would see the joy of opportunity that we, too, may be a beacon of light to a hurting, hurting world that needs to know our Savior. Give us joy in this journey as we worship. May we go on our way rejoicing now. In Jesus' precious name we ask. Amen.